Welcome to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We do everything we do because we believe life with Jesus is better. If you like what you hear, we'd love to have you swing by and join us for worship. We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and have other groups and ministries on various days of the week. You can learn more by going to wakeparkchurch.org. Good morning. Today's reading is Acts 22, 1 through 21. If you would like to read along, it's in page 763 in your pew Bible. In Aramaic, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Silica but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As the high priest and all the council can themselves testify, I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus, and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from the heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all of what you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus, because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, because your your sight, receive your sight. And at the very moment I was able to see him. Then he said, the God of the ancestors has chosen you to know his will and see the righteous one and to hear the words of his mouth. You will be the witness to all people what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem, he was praying at the temple. I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately, because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from the one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your murder, Stephen, was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away into the Gentiles. 
So last week, you'll remember that Corey was talking to us about Paul's emotional farewell to the Ephesian elders. And you may also remember that as he was leaving, he said to them in Acts 20, 22, now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Actually, as Corey pointed out, even though Paul didn't really know what was going to happen, he was pretty sure that hardships were heading his way in Jerusalem. But he's okay with that because he's committed to doing what God has asked him to do. In Acts 21, Luke chronicles this journey uh, that Paul took from Ephesus to Jerusalem. And you'll notice in that chapter, he uses we language, which tells us that Luke was also along for this part of the journey with Paul. So he's witnessing these things. And all along the way, the people are telling Paul that going to Jerusalem is just a bad idea. They stopped in Tyre, and the disciples there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. But Paul wouldn't budge. So all of them, men, women, and children, all went out to the beach where Paul was boarding his ship to pray for him as, they went, as he went. It kind of reminds me of, you know, when you can tell something's a bad idea, things aren't going to go well, everyone just shows up to say, uh, we, we hope you know what you're doing. They just, they had this sense that things were not going to go well. They later stopped in Caesarea to stay in the house of Philip, who had four unmarried daughters who were all prophets. Just thought that's... I like that side note there. In case you didn't know that, Philip had four unmarried daughters who were all prophets. But while they were there, another believer named Agabus came to Paul with a prophetic message that if Paul were to go to Jerusalem, he'd be bound and handed over to the Gentiles. So at this point, Paul's companions, Luke included, are pleading with Paul, please do not go to Jerusalem. But Paul was still unmoved. And when they finally made it to Jerusalem, things seemed to be going well at the beginning. They got a warm welcome from the believers there. Paul gave them a detailed report on all the work that God had been doing among the Gentiles through his ministry, and they all celebrated what God had done. But then things got sticky. All throughout Paul's missionary journeys, he had been welcoming Gentiles into the family of God, and it had ticked off the Jews all throughout the region. And it turns out that some of those ticked-off Jews happened to be in Jerusalem when Paul was also there. So they spotted him in the temple, and they started uh, shouting to the crowd about how Paul had been telling lies about the Jews, about their religion, about the temple. And they further accused Paul of defiling the temple by bringing in outsiders. They thought Paul was a traitor to the Jews. Those accusations got the crowd riled up fast. So Acts 21, verses 30 through 36 in the message says this. Soon the whole city was in an uproar, people running from everywhere to the temple to get in on the action. They grabbed Paul, dragged him outside, and locked the temple gates so he couldn't get back in and gain sanctuary. As they were trying to kill him, word came to the captain of the guard, a riot, the whole city is boiling over. He acted swiftly. His soldiers and centurions ran to the scene at once. As soon as the mob saw the captain and his soldiers, they quit beating Paul. The captain came up and put Paul under arrest. He first ordered him handcuffed, then asked the crowd who he was and what he had done. All he got from the crowd were shouts, one yelling this, another that. It was impossible to tell one word from another in the mob hysteria, so the captain ordered Paul taken to the military barracks. But when they got to the temple steps, the mob became so violent that the soldiers had to carry Paul. As they carried him away, the crowd followed, shouting, kill him, kill him. So needless to say, this situation was more than a little tense. 
But what is a Jewish Christian like Paul to do? As we're about to see, and you have heard through the scripture passage that was read, Paul has been steeped his whole life in Jewish culture and tradition and faith his entire life, but he's also experienced this radical transformation after encountering Jesus. He sees the family of God expanding to include not just Jews, but Gentiles too. But that's confusing to Jews who had lived their whole lives thinking that the family of God was just them and people who followed their rules. So after he's arrested, Paul asks the captain of the guard to allow him to address the crowd, which is what we're talking about this morning. So given the circumstances, I think it's actually pretty incredible to see Paul's clarity and his courage in his arguments. So let's take a deeper look at what Paul is saying here and what it would have meant to his original audience. So the passage begins by Paul speaking in Aramaic. You may have picked up on that as a significant detail because in verse 2, Uh, the crowd gets quiet when they hear him begin. That's because Aramaic was the language of the Jews. Addressing the crowd in Aramaic would have meant that everyone in the crowd could understand him, and it would have been a signal to them that he is, in fact, one of them. It's kind of like a Minnesotan hearing a stranger call the meal that they made a hot dish rather than a casserole. It would be your little signal that this is one of your people. I'm trying very hard to become one of your people, but I still call it a casserole, I'm sorry. But Paul's language of choice wasn't the only proof that he offered of his Jewishness. In verse 3, he uses the ancient pattern of identifying oneself by describing his birth, his rearing, and his education. So first, he's a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia. So he's one of them. Second, he was not only born Jewish, but he had also been raised in Jerusalem. So just like you wouldn't suspect that a Minnesotan kid who was raised near U.S. Bank Stadium would grow up to become a traitorous Packers fan, in the same way, the Jews would hardly expect one of their own who had been reared in Jerusalem to be against the temple. And in addition to that heritage, he tells us that he's been thoroughly trained in the law by Gamaliel. So that might seem like a small deal, small detail to us, but that was a pretty big deal to the Jews at the time. Gamaliel's grandfather had been a famous rabbi, and he too had become a well-known teacher, one of the most eminent teachers of his time. He had a reputation for scholarship, wisdom, and moderation, and was honored by all of the people. You may even remember back in, I believe it's in Acts chapter 5, when the religious leaders are trying to figure out how to squash this Jesus movement, it's Gamaliel who steps up and says, if this is of the Lord, you can't stop it. So if Paul tells his audience that he had been trained by Gamaliel, it would be a little like if I came up here and said that I had been mentored by Tim Keller or N.T. Wright. That would kind of get your attention. You think, oh, this is, this is an important detail. This is, her mentorship is significant. So now that he's established his credentials as a Jew, Paul moves on to four arguments to prove that his Jewish heritage isn't at odds with this Christian faith. And it's not at odds with the inclusion of the Gentiles. In fact, he sees those things as compatible. So let's look at Paul's first argument in verses four and five. He says, I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. 
I even obtained letters from them to bring their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. So the fact that Paul was willing to go so far as to persecute both men and women and sometimes to the point of death would have shown the audience that his zeal for the Lord is no joke. In case anyone doubted it, Paul points out that he, they can confirm his story with the high priest and the council, and they can check the papers that he had requested for permission to persecute the Christians. His second argument comes in verses 6 through 11, where he tells the story of his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And for those of us who are reading the book of Acts, we see this and we think, this is just a retelling of what we saw back in Acts chapter 9. But remember, Paul's audience didn't have the book of Acts. For many of them, they've never heard this before. And so he shares his story knowing that there's details in it that would be significant to his Jewish audience. So first, this image of blinding light at noontime would have been a signal to the crowd that this was, in fact, a divine encounter. Luke emphasizes that to his audience, too, by using the same phrase to how he had been acting. And notice that here, too, he points out that his traveling companions witnessed what happened. He's not making this up. So here's another key part of Paul's argument. He tells the crowd that Jesus called out to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That statement, along with the blinding light that was clearly the glory of God as he was being cast to the ground as a sign of divine judgment, would have helped the crowd see that Jesus of Nazareth in his resurrection power is the key for distinguishing between proper and misguided zeal for the Lord. Jesus is the litmus test. So any zeal for God that turns a person against the followers of Jesus is misguided. Paul's third argument comes to us in verses 12 through 16. And this is where he starts to tease out what it means to be both Jewish and a Christian. And it helps that Ananias plays such a key role in this part. Because Ananias is a really great witness because he had a great reputation amongst the Jews in Damascus. So if Ananias was able to be both a Christian and hold on to his Jewish heritage, that meant that it was probably possible for other people to do so as well. So notice that Ananias points out that it was the God of our ancestors who had chosen Paul. He says that not because this is an unfamiliar God, but because it is their God, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And when Ananias refers to Jesus, he uses the title, the righteous one, which was used all throughout the Old Testament to refer to the Messiah. So when these pieces started to click into place for Paul, from both his experience uh, on the road to Damascus and his inter interactions with Ananias, he began to see that if Jesus really was the vindicated, death-conquering Messiah, then Jesus had both fulfilled and superseded the law. And because of what he has now seen and experienced, Paul is to be a witness to all peoples of the things that Jesus had done in his life which is exactly what Jesus had commanded his followers to do way back in the beginning of Acts in chapter 1, verse 8. In verses 17 through 21, Paul moves into his fourth argument where he gives some personal examples from his own life of how he's lived in that tension of being both Jewish and Christian. We see in verse 17 that he continues to worship in the temple. And when God comes to Paul and tells him that he's got to go to the Gentiles, Paul pushes back. 
It's like Paul saying, I don't need to go to those people. I feel like I'm a really good witness for the Jews, and here's why. I've been a loyal Jew my whole life. I think I can gain um, a hearing amongst them. But God told him no. God wants to see the Gentiles welcomed into the family of God, and he wants Paul to do it. So Paul obeys. So now that Paul has laid out his case before the crowd, he feels that he's proved that the charge that he's a traitor to the Jews is false. But even so, the Jews' opposition to him is very real. Jesus was the key that unlocked Paul's argument, but the Jews refused to accept that Jesus was the Messiah. They couldn't believe that the good news was meant for everyone, that the long-awaited Messiah had truly come, and that everyone was welcome at his table. So let's talk about what this means for us. It's great to have a better understanding of the richness of the text and what Paul's arguments meant and how that would have hit his audience back in the day. And I think we can be grateful too for the truth that the Messiah has come to the Gentiles and that they're welcomed into the family of God. But at the same time, we're not Jews that are struggling to figure this all out. And we're not currently on trial by an angry mob like Paul was. So asking God what he would have to say, say to us through his word is an important question to ask. It's an important question to ask any day, but especially of a passage like this one. It can be tricky. And even Pastor Corey knew that it was tricky because when he asked me to preach on this Sunday while he's away, he told me what the passage would be and said, have fun. Thanks, Corey. So despite our distance from the time and place and circumstances of this passage, I think it holds some truth that we need to hear. And the truth that stuck out to me is this one. When the path ahead seems unclear, follow the light of Jesus. When I think about Paul's life before Jesus, I have some compassion for him. He certainly took things way too far by facilitating the murder and arrest of followers of Jesus, but he was a zealous Jew, and it seemed like these Christians were spreading lies and corrupting the faith. They were throwing everything off balance in the world of the Jews, and that made Paul angry. In the midst of the uncertainty of the tumultuous time in which he found himself, Paul did what he thought was best. But his Damascus Road experience shows him that the only way to find clarity in the midst of his circumstances is to look through the light of Jesus. So like Paul, when we are facing uncertain circumstances, when things feel off balance and the way feels unclear, follow the light of Jesus. That might lead us to places where we need to repent. I hope none of us will be stopped in our tracks by a blinding light at noon with a voice from heaven to get our attention saying that we need to repent. I hope that we can be a family of believers that is so committed to hearing the voice of God that when we hear the smallest whisper from him, we obey. I hope we can be a family of believers that recognizes when we're triggered to anger and rather than going on rants on social media or um, a rant in the break room, that will turn to Jesus and in humility ask him to shine his light on the situation and show us places where even we may need to repent. And when I say I want this for us, I say that knowing that it's not easy. It can be really hard. And I say this knowing that I have failed miserably in this way. I've had certain issues or circumstances where I felt so sure that I was right 
and I would go, I wouldn't necessarily call it a tirade, but I would be very strong in declaring what I thought to be true and my opinion on a situation or a circumstance. And in the process, I've wounded people deeply. I have a friend who is desperately in need of Jesus, and I have lost the right to speak into his life because I acted out of arrogance and self-righteousness rather than humility and kindness in my conversations with him. So when the path ahead seems unclear, don't lead on your own understanding. Follow the light of Jesus, even when it leads you to hard places where you need to repent. Following the light of Jesus in times of uncertainty can also lead us to some unexpected places. I'm sure that if you asked Paul when he was being trained by Gamaliel that he would one day use his skills as a teacher and orator and debater to travel around the eastern Mediterranean region telling Gentiles about Jesus, he would have had more than a few questions. And in some, way, some of the same ways, you might be finding yourself in an unexpected place. Perhaps you're living someplace that you didn't expect to be living or in a job that you didn't expect to have. Maybe you're at a school that you didn't plan on attending or you're volunteering at an organization that you would never have envisioned yourself at. You might be in that unexpected place knowing that only the light of Jesus could have led you there. You might still be following that light and still not quite know why you're there. To be honest, you might never fully know why you're in that place. I don't think Paul ever fully realized just how important following Jesus to unexpected places would be, not just in his own life, but in the history and trajectory of the whole church. As we're going to see in the last few weeks of our study of Acts, Paul's travels will eventually lead him to Rome. And the propulsion of the gospel to the heart of the Roman Empire would be crucial to the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth, as Jesus commanded his followers to do in Acts 1.8. But Paul didn't know that at the time. He was just following the light of Jesus no matter where it took him. So when the path ahead seems unclear, follow the light of Jesus even into unexpected places. And as we're following the light of Jesus, we need to also understand that he may lead us into relationships with people that we perceive to be outsiders. It's hard for us to understand just how impossible it would have seemed for a Jew to welcome a Gentile into the family of God. In large part because we're Gentiles and we're pretty comfortable with ourselves. And in America, the vast majority of believers that we interact with are also Gentiles. So we just don't feel that rub of that Jew-Gentile distinction that Paul and his audience would have felt. But we can start to get a little closer to understanding that feeling when we start thinking about who we would be surprised to see sitting around the table with us in heaven. We get even closer when we start to think about who we would be offended to see sitting around the table. I'm not making an argument for universalism here, but what I am saying is that I think the table is bigger than we expect because it was certainly bigger than what Paul thought and it was certainly bigger than what the Jews thought too. When the path ahead seems unclear, follow the light of Jesus. Follow him into repentance. Follow him into unexpected places. Follow him into relationships with people, even the ones that you believe to be outsiders. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray this morning that as we continue to think through and process um, 
this passage, what it meant to the people who were hearing it, as we continue to think about Paul and the ministry to which you called him and just that rub that they would have felt as Jews at the time welcoming Gentiles into the family of God. I pray that you would keep our hearts soft and attentive to how you're speaking in the ways that we may need to change in our own lives, to the places and the people you may be calling us to that we would not expect. I pray that we would do that with humility, with grace, and with wisdom too. We want to follow your light. We want to walk in your ways. Teach us how to do that even better, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more and serve him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.